There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Good morning. It's Wednesday, 8th of March on The Michael Reed Show. This morning, it's International Women's Day. But where is the equality? The fallout continues following the government's announcement to end the eviction ban. We discuss with one minister, what next? has been a broad welcome following the decision to abolish the 80 euro inpatient hospital charge. And changes to the primary school curriculum are on the way, but are they workable? Good morning, you're with Alan Cantwell till 11 o'clock this morning. If you want to contact us, you can do so by WhatsApp or email. Our number is 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. The Taoiseach defended the government's decision not to renew the evictions ban. The restriction will lapse at the end of this month, with evictions to resume on a phased basis out to June. Opposition parties have been strongly critical of the move, with people before profit describing it as inhumane. Leo Varadkar said the ban was creating a new form of homelessness and people who couldn't move back into property they owned. Joining us this morning is Minister of State at the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment, with special responsibility for employment affairs and retail Richmond. Minister, good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning. Let me ask you first off, is there disquiet within government circles over this decision? No, I don't think so. Whilst I recognise that certain government uh, backbench TDs, not from my own party, have raised issues. Generally, this has been accepted. This was also expected. There's been quite a bit of discussion, Alan, within our parties and indeed across the door for some weeks now in relation uh, to this moratorium that was due to lapse. I know within my own party there was actually quite a number of people saying it needed to lapse ultimately because the short-term benefits uh, were starting to be outweighed by medium and long-term issues in terms of overall supply. So I think this was an inevitable decision that had to be taken and I think one thing to remind people, it won't be a cliff edge, it will be on a phased basis and we've used the last number number of months well to to really increase the amount of supply uh, and to to, uh, to put in place uh, protections both for renters and landlords. Because whatever people say ideologically, we do need landlords. We do need more uh, more accommodation, rental accommodation in the state because supply is the biggest issue okay. impacting our housing demands. Perhaps you could shed some light on why it has taken the housing minister so long to grasp the obvious. He, we, everybody has known that landlords were leaving for various reasons, but predominantly one was it does not stack up as a business model. And yet the Minister for Housing decides, oh, I better go away now and put something together for Budget 2024 that will be meaningful for both renters and landlords to keep landlords 
in 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 the business. Now, if that was the private sector and there was an employee dealing with a problem of that magnitude and they only decided at the last minute when the gun was put to their head to come up with a solution, they'd be fired. And if the CEO didn't fire him, the CEO should go. It's not it's not reasonable to expect that the the minister acted with a degree of prudence and speed around this issue, is it not, Minister? Well, I actually, I'd reject that, Alan. I think this has been a constant issue. It hasn't just been some sort of last-minute decision. But yes, there's been announcements yesterday of new um, of new moves and new plans, but they've been on foot of engagement with property owners, with tenants, with the property industry as a whole for quite some time now. And there has been changes previously made, both in terms of budgetary decisions as well as um, regulatory decisions. And they've all happened over the last couple of years. And that's why we're starting to see supply coming on track in a larger scale in terms of development. But we do need to address the reason people are leaving um, the market on landlords are there's a very diverse and very many reasons we can't address all of those but certainly I believe that with ending this moratorium and putting together a genuine package uh, for renters for landlords but also increasing resources for the state to play uh, a much more improved role um, to allow people to achieve a home ownership I think this is something that will be positive in the medium term but again Alan it all comes down to supply we need to build build and build Let's talk then, just going back to the Housing Minister, uh, Darrell Bryan, and the subcommittee that was set up to look at this particular issue, which came up with a raft of potential tax incentives that would encourage landlords to stay. He went to Cabinet with a memo, with none of those tax measures outlined in that memo, which would be of benefit to tax Uh, of tax incentives for landlords. But yet after this decision was made, he decided to run out and say, I have to now put something together around tax incentives in order to keep landlords there. Well, there will be no changes to tax incentives at the moment, Alan. That's done. No, I know that, but I mean, he could have flagged this months ago or weeks ago. He can't announce the budget uh, in March. I I get that, Minister, but what I'm just saying... That's really important. I know, what I'm just saying is he could have flagged this a long time ago, that it wouldn't suddenly just land on us as a revelation to say, well, now we have to do this. Well, again, I don't think it's a revelation because the minister has been engaging with the sector consistently, as has all government ministers um, consistently over the last months and longer about what's needed. This has been raised, I'd say, every week for the last 10 weeks at my own Senegal parliamentary party meeting every Wednesday. It'll be raised again. This isn't some last minute revelation. And I fundamentally believe when we're starting to prepare the budget that will happen in late September, early October, that sort of preparatory work comes in after the Easter break um, through the summer months. That's when the real meat of that work will be done and we'll be able to provide people with concrete plans and concrete decisions rather than just okay. speculation. Let's then talk about the situation that is going to face a lot of tenants who will be displaced from their homes because inevitably there will be evictions for whatever reason, selling of property or giving a property to a family member or a family moving into a property, whatever. How do we cope with that situation? Well, there's a number of measures announced um, yesterday by the Taoiseach and the Dáil following on from the Cabinet decision that will really have a huge impact there. The, the fact that we're providing resources to lease uh, a thousand additional units, the fact that the state is also putting in place a scheme for 1,500 tenant in situ uh, purchases, we're building an extra additional 800 emergency bells, uh, beds. But crucially, we're also seeing supply increased. Over 30,000 homes were built last year in the state. That was above estimation 
we're seeing the commencement notices for both January and February are way ahead of um, are way ahead of what expectation was over the of the thirty thousand last year. Over seven thousand of those were social housing. So the key to this is absolutely more supply, more supply of long term and rental accommodation as well as emergency supply. And we will see that. Um, we're not going to see this avalanche of evictions that doom mongers and the opposition uh, benches have been trying to stoke up fears about over the last few weeks. Yes, there will be evictions, but it won't be a cliff edge. It's not all going to happen on the 1st of April. These will only be introduced in a phase basis. There will obviously be statutory obligations mm-hmm. on both landlords and renters. And we're also seeing renters who are in a situation where rents are expensive, they are, of course, eligible to get back their, their renter's allowance, the new €500 Euro credit scheme. Um, that's €500 Euro per renter. So if there's four renters, that's €2,000 uh, for, for a unit. On the face of it, the tenant in a situ purchase scheme is something that could work and could work pretty simply. Number one, is there an appetite for it? Number two, is the necessary funding available for it? And number three, can it happen at the speed that's required in order to make an impact? The funding is absolutely there. The funding is there today. Um, The speed, I think... That'll come. There's a huge focus now to make that work uh, a lot quicker because the more you speed up the process, the more that'll drive up the appetite. And the appetite is there. And we've seen changes uh, from the central bank in terms of um, lending rules. We've also seen um, the Help to Buy scheme help thousands uh, of young people buy their first home. So these are all the, are all the areas that will be able to drive um, these 1,500 tenant in situ purchases that we hope to see achieved in the next number of months. They're really important in addition to the 1,000 extra units the state is leasing from private landlords. How do you see the the landscape in a year to 18 months time, Minister, around this particular issue? Do you think that we will have made a significant dent in the homelessness numbers in order to say, yeah, we've made an impact? I think think in the short term, I think we have to be realistic that the homeless numbers aren't going to drop significantly in the short term. They may even, in the immediacy, uh, increase a small amount. But we saw last year uh, over 2,700 people taken out of homelessness. We saw 3,000 people uh, stopped from going into homelessness. And the more we see uh, supply, the more we see new units being built across the state, the more we see increased levels of rapid build homes. We're going to see the first modular homes being built in the next couple of weeks. That's the sort of thing that we need to see at pace. And the government's making very clear interventions in terms of investing in state building on state lands of social affordable housing, but also increased emergency accommodation and increased student accommodation, including the over 400 units announced for DCU yesterday by Minister Harris. These are all the things that I think if we look back in year time, 18 months time, that we've seen that the back is starting to be broken of what, what is a clear crisis and no one denies that a crisis that impacts every household in the country and has a huge major economic as well as social impact. I think we're starting to see that turn by the sheer increase in supply and that is where the most important thing is. It's not tinkering around the edges with legislation, it's driving supply on a on a major scale of every form of uh, housing. Nonetheless, you do accept that this comes at a difficult time for the government, that there will be a backlash, there has been a backlash, and it is not short term, this will continue. So there is an onus on you in government and your colleagues to deliver and deliver fast. Now, we know where we're at, it is what it is, but what we want now is a very definitive, clear roadmap, and people just aren't convinced that that is being rolled out yet. 
Well, I think the numbers are what's key to this, Alan. We have very stark homelessness figures. We have very stark issues when it comes to rent. But we are seeing um, that property prices are starting to decline. But crucially, we're starting to see the houses built. When I talk about commencement notices, that is building that started in the last two months of homes that will be ready for people to buy and move into this calendar year. They're going up and up and up. There is a clear roadmap to increase the level of supply across the state in every county of every form of accommodation. And the state has made very clear um, engagements to ensure that we can offset the issues in relation to labour costs, material costs, um, to really address that supply issue. Housing is the biggest challenge facing the government. No one is in denial about that, but it's a challenge that we're up for um, tackling. I think we've put in place uh, the support and the funding to ensure that we can do that. And what do you say to politicians, and there has been many cases um, catalogued where they have objected to developments in their own backyard. Should they be allowed to do that as politicians? I know as a citizen, everyone has a right to object to something that's going on. But surely, given the magnitude of the problem, we should have a look at you know their involvement in that planning process of objecting. Well, certainly I can say from my own point of view, I've never objected to any housing development in a political career that's nearly 15 years long now, council, senate, and, and in the Dáil now as a minister. And the Taoiseach said it quite clearly that it's a very... For anyone to object to housing of any form at this moment requires deep reflection. And that goes for people within my own party, Alan, as well as people in other parties. But there is a trend. The people who give out about the housing crisis the most in the opposition parties are the people who object the most to developments. And they object for ideological reasons as well as nimbyism. And I think everyone has to reflect that we don't have enough homes uh, in our state at the moment for people. Um, that therefore, we need to do everything uh, to drive forward. And when I see people criticising the ending of this moratorium yesterday, they're the same people who have voted against and opposed every measure to alleviate uh, the housing crisis. They voted against the Help to Buy scheme. They voted, voted against the creation of the Land Development Agency and they are objecting consistently to the development of homes in their own area and wider afield based on ideological grounds that to me are just nonsensical in the middle of a housing crisis. There we must leave it. Minister of State, the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment, Neil Richmond, thank you for joining us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. Do feel free to contact us. WhatsApp 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. You're with Alan Cantwell until 11 o'clock this morning. 80% of young carers suffer from elevated levels of depressive symptoms. Family Carers Ireland says that of the 67,000 carers aged between 10 and 17, many suffer from stress, loneliness and difficulties coping. It's calling on the government to dedicate funding for counselling supports and to establish a cross-departmental group on young carers. Dr Nikki Dunn is Research Manager with Family Carers Ireland and joins us this morning. Morning to you, um, Doctor. What totally has me flabbergasted is the fact that we have individuals aged between 10 and 17 being carers. Sure, an adult finds it difficult to try and cope with the complexities of caring for somebody. How in the name of God can someone of that age do it, particularly children? Well, good morning, Alan, and thanks for having me on. Um, I suppose, yeah, you make a very valid point, but I just give you a, a, a definition, really, of who a young carer is. So they're young people, typically under the age of 18, providing care to a family member and in our survey or in our research which was um, a survey and and some workshops we um, also included young adult carers they're they're between 18 and 24 years old so just in terms of what they do I know you were saying about the complexity of caring 
there is a continuum of care for young carers. So some young carers may be doing, you know, just a few hours of care every week and they're included in that 67,000 um, carers, young carers in Ireland. But then you have some who are, you know, kind of doing a lot more caring tasks that they might be helping with medication regimes, helping with personal care. And obviously that depends on the type of illness or disability mm-hmm. of the person that they're caring for. So it's not all necessarily... Um, complex care you know that there is that continuum yeah, there yeah, I, I, I get that but it strikes me it's an abdication of responsibility on the part of the government that will say okay you take care of it at home in the home as carers and then we step away surely that's not right yeah look 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 it isn't right and i think what we have definitely seen from our research and it confirms um a lot of research in, in internationally as well is that whilst there are quite a lot of positives associated with care and that's true for the adult population. The young people who participated in our research, and I must stress that the, these aren't representative of all young carers in Ireland, and they're people who are engaging, a lot, a lot of people who are engaged with Family Care Ireland services already, but they, they do experience the harmful impact of caring, not only on their health and well-being, so like you said, in the Europan and um, elevated levels of depression, loneliness, you know, difficulty going out to meet friends if you've got a caring role. That's difficult for an adult carer. Of course, that's really difficult for a child who, you know... But it is, because their life has essentially to be put on hold in order to ensure the well-being of the individual that they are looking after. And there's a sense of unfairness around that. And it almost strikes me it's a case of the carer needs caring. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's one of the things. So as part of the research that we, we did, it was very much... The workshops were very much participatory and it was about young carers kind of being able to formulate what they needed to support themselves and our recommendations have kind of built on that. Um, Education was a huge thing that came up in the workshops and in the survey as well. Um, So many, many, most of those who did take part in the workshops and survey were in education and care and had a clear impact and there was a lack of understanding from teachers and educators and even actually when there was understanding so some teachers did get it but they mm-hmm. still weren't sure about how to support the young person there was difficulty transitioning into third level so kind of lifelong impact of being a, a young person caring you know and is it possible to break down by gender who is doing the most caring or is it an even split um, in our in our in our survey there was more and, and in our workshops there was definitely more um, girls and young women um, but let me just double check with the like the, there's a more representative sample that looks at no the, no no that, that's okay just, yeah, I just thought you might have it's a little have bit it more even yeah. so there's, 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 it's slightly more skewed towards girls and young women yeah. so on the basis of that then have you are you able to extrapolate from the research you have commissioned whether women can cope better or girls can cope better in situations like that as opposed to boys or men or is it both or do they both suffer the same sort of problems and they need the same support mechanisms yeah this research I must stress it's a very small piece of research there's yeah. 131 people who took part in the survey and and the workshops, you know, that were, were, were very in-depth with a small group of people. So we wouldn't really be able to extrapolate out what, okay. um, what but, but at the same time, I get what you're saying around some of the kind of gendered nuances and some of the, you know, what might be 
like I, I think you can you can see some girls maybe kind of taking on more gendered roles around mm-hmm. caring. So yeah. Um, so then, if we were get to get to a point where you would be satisfied that the support mechanisms are in place, you know, are are you getting a fair hearing from those who are in a position of power to change things, or is it a battle you've been fighting and will continue to fight? Yeah, well, I think I think in Ireland, so there's actually there's a piece of research from a couple of years ago, a few years ago, where um, academics looked at different countries across the world and and how they were doing in terms of their approaches, their policy approach and support uh, for young carers. Now, the UK comes out as advanced status, but Ireland is actually just seen as, a, as, as, as an emerging country. And what that means is that there isn't really a, a kind of um, coherent policy or legislative support basis for young carers in, in Ireland. So really, in Ireland at the moment, we... We're kind of starting from a very early, you know, in, in early, the early steps. I think we've called in, in the in the research and um, that was launched mm. yesterday. We're calling for the development of a policy agenda, and that might seem, you know, that's not necessarily asking for, you know, it's it, it, it's it's very very early stages. So we need a cross party working group yeah. that One. addresses the needs of young carers, and we also need. Um, one of the governmental, like a specific government department to take responsibility for young carers. So at the moment, they're not, they don't have ultimate responsibility um, within one government department and we're calling for the department. Young carers, young carers aside, we are in a perfect storm in this country when we consider we have an ageing population and from what I can gather, we will not be in a position unless we take some form of radical action now to be in a position to have care facilities, support facilities for an elderly population in this country in the next couple of decades. That creates in itself a serious issue, does it not? Absolutely, absolutely. And this is, you know, we, we have been calling consistently for um, better support, not only for, like, thinking about the ageing population, but people people with disabilities and chronic illnesses as well. And um, what we've seen over the last number of years is just poor services and the impact that that has not only on the person requiring care, but also on their family care or on the wider uh, society as well. Can so, you yeah, just absolutely. can you just give me an insight, particularly amongst younger carers, when we talk about them being a carer, what does that encompass in terms of its definition in relation to what the tasks they do? Yeah, so again, like adult carers, it can range. So it might be emotional support, sitting with the person, listening to them, it might be helping them around the house, but it can also, um, you know, kind of go into medication regimes. So it, as part of our research, we looked, you know, young carers actually represented um, artistically some of the tasks and what their experiences of being a young carer. And you can see this represented visually. I know we're, we're on the radio, obviously, but it's quite these beautiful collages around, you know, some of the medication equipment young carers are kind of helping the, the, the person that they care for with. So, you know, activities of daily, daily living, you can see people washing and bathing and being involved with feeding, medication regimes, as I said, helping the person with shopping, walking, climbing stairs. So it is a, it is a continuum um, like it would be for adult carers mm-hmm. as well. And it has a wide impact, as I said, school, mm-hmm. education, health and well-being. 
Now, for an adult caring for um, a member of their family or partner, it, it's it's a difficult process. It can be exasperating. It can be lead to anxiety, stress and whatever. So realistically, albeit that the younger carer does a lesser, takes part in a lesser role, it's not really sustainable long term for them, is it? No, it wouldn't be. They, they, they need what other research that we've been involved in has actually shown is that uh, the opportunity to um, participate socially, so being able to take part, in, you know, going out with peers, take part in extracurricular activities and so on. All of these opportunities actually have a protective impact, have a, a, a protective effect against depression and anxiety. So what this would suggest is that respite, time away from the caring role is actually really important to kind of alleviate those symptoms or um, or, or, or uh, yeah, the symptoms of depression. So we would say that, you know, respite not really came up in our research as well, especially in the in the workshop that respite was actually really important. People needed time away from their caring role. And if they were caring for a sibling, you know, just to have that undivided attention from their parents, some family time without kind of the worry of caring as well. So I think respite is, and, yeah. and that's one of what, what we've been calling for as well, not only for young carers, but for adult carers, that there's a minimum of 20 days free respite care for caring families. I think as well, um, just before we leave it, Nikki, it's important to point out that there are uh, facilities available. There are supports there. It's a question that can be difficult, though, to seek them out in order uh, to get them in, in train, and it could take a little bit of time. So if you're in, a, in this sort of position where you need help, you want support, where's the best place to go? Is it the district nurse, the local health authority? Where is it? Well, it just it, that will depend on the on the on the condition of the person. Like if they're an older person, it would be you know a public health nurse, older yeah. person services, starting with your GP. And um, if you're unsure, Family Carers Ireland have a care line. We have support managers, you know, that we we would be able to help and direct anybody who is a carer or who might think that they're a carer. And um, so, you know, that's I think a starting point. But definitely, GP would be would be one person to go to and, and Family Carers Ireland. Okay, we leave it there. Dr Nikki Dunn, Research Manager with the Family Carers Ireland. Thank you so much for joining us. Just before we go to a break, yesterday we had a conversation around um, the use of hard cash, as it were, that we were going to the whole, uh, going to a cashless society and there was uproar over it, and quite rightly so, in relation to people who have disabilities trying to access cash or those uh, who are more mature who wouldn't be in a position to be able to work around ATMs or online purchasing. And we were talking about GAA tickets and how there was that great sense of getting the ticket, the physical ticket, for the match and you no longer can get it online. Now, the good news, and I said I'd clarify this today because I wasn't sure yesterday, you can still buy a physical ticket for any GAA match. You can buy them in Super Value or Centra, but I would suggest you just check with your local Super Value or Centra before you go and see if you can get the ticket. But certainly around here, we did a check. You can get them. And I think if I remember correctly, I bought one in one of my local um, Centres of Super Values there not so long ago. So just bear that in mind. The other thing I want you to perhaps let us know is your situation pertaining to your living and what yesterday's decision by the government will mean for you. Are you facing an eviction? Have you been trying to look for accommodation, knowing that perhaps 
post this eviction that you would find yourself out of a home give me a call 086-1800-658 or you can email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM A couple of comments in relation to the eviction ban. Liam thinks the government are trying to defend the indefensible with this one. Even the housing minister himself admitted yesterday that the decision will result in increased homelessness across the country. How can these people sleep at night knowing the consequences of their action? Richie says the decision by the government to end the eviction ban says all we need to know about this government and its inhumane policies on our housing sector. Sarah describes the decision as completely devoid of humanity. Government are coming across as totally unfeeling without an ounce of concern for the suffering of those facing eviction or those already homeless. Shame on them for making this decision. Activists are marching from the spire on Dublin's O'Connell Street to the Doyle this evening to protest over the government's decision to lift the eviction ban. That uh, march gets underway at five o'clock. The Rosa Socialist uh, Feminist Movement said the move was heartless and condemned it as a societal disaster. Spokesperson Ruth Coppinger said it was a callous measure that would hit women and children the most. And Ruth Coppinger joins us this morning. Uh, morning, Ruth. Um, you have always, in your private capacity and as an elected representative of Doyle Aaron, fought for those on the margins and were very much immersed in the issues that face them on a daily basis. Is this as bad as it gets in your mind? It is. I've already had uh, people contacting me and I'm not even elected, as you say, Mm. and my colleague, councillor as well, inboxes filling up with stress and fear. This measure will definitely hit women and children most because we know it tends to be women who have the responsibility for uh, for children in general, but also lone parents tend to be stuck in the private rented sector in more vulnerable situations and the largest group facing homelessness. Um, so it's ironic that this has been done on the eve of International Women's Day, but it's another reason why we need to make this a day of protests and the movement of women and working class people demanding uh, that this measure is scrapped but also raising about all of the other issues of oppression that women face today uh, in the world and in relation to the eviction ban I mean we've heard all sorts of excuses about balance of rights but the reality is all of the cards are stacked in favour of landlords and vulture funds right now and what the exi- what the existing situation meant was that a landlord could still sell a home. Mm. Nothing but but, but you've got to accept, Ruth, we, we do need the private landlord, the small private landlord in the game in order to, you know, to help with the crisis. If they disappear, we're in real trouble. Well, it's funny. I, I got elected in a by-election in 2014 and the, the mantra was it takes time to build social housing. Now, here we are nine years later and we're still in the exact same situation. We, we need public housing to be built. That is the root of this problem. There's ample state lands and there's loads of money. But this is a political and ideological decision. Here in Fingal, where I, I, I live, the council built nothing in 2021 of its own. It did acquire units, all right, off the private sector at huge cost. Some housing group associations built some housing. But nothing like what happened, and we've a huge land bank here upon which they could build at least 1,100 units and none of them are opened, nothing has mm-hmm. been done. You call so, this, I just want to go back to, to, to the march and where we're at as, yeah. as a country, as a society. You call this a societal disaster. Whatever about the political 
righteousness of making this particular move in order to get to a point where where we have a workable solution. A lot has to be said of us as a society that we would allow this to happen because there is a moral responsibility on each and every one of us not to stand by and allow women and children to be evicted from their homes, quite probably quite rightly and within the law, but to have them on the street or have them in a hotel room or have them in some sort of temporary accommodation, that says more about us as a society, does it not? Well, it's it's also amazing how steeped in Irish history the whole thing about evictions is. And yes, here we have uh, a very neoliberal capitalist government that's willing to do that right now. And I'll tell you what's... what's but we, may, we need to make a stand, though, Ruth, ourselves as individual citizens of this country. And it strikes me we're not. Well, I think that there is revulsion about this. There is, people, but I mean, it's all it's all very well to be uh, to find this revolting and to go to Twitter or go to Facebook. But you know, it's about boots on the street to protest. Well, absolutely, and 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 tonight is an opportunity to do that. Can I make one additional point? What people may not realise before this eviction ban um, was put in place. Like a year ago, it was always bad, but now we have the additional factor of war refugees in emergency accommodation. Now, I'm completely in favour of us taking in refugees, but this is going to lead to a rise in racism and hand another weapon to the far right because it will be posed by them uh, that you know two vulnerable groups will now be competing with each other for emergency accommodation and potentially people on the streets. So the government have actually added yet again to this, you know, noxious problem of the far right who are stirring up hatred and division on the basis of the alienation and, you know, fear that people have. So it's another additional factor as to why the government should not have done this. Okay, Ruth, I'm conscious of the fact we came on here to talk a a little bit about um, International Women's Day and the lack of equality that still exists, not in this country, but globally when it comes to women. Why is it still the case? Why do we allow it to happen? And what are we not doing in order to ensure that the government listen, that businesses listen? I know we're making shifts in terms of breaking the glass ceiling and and a greater equality within the workplace, but there's still so much more to be done. Well, when you have a society which is based on inequality and extremes of wealth, It'll never be possible for the majority of women to be, you know, liberated and have equality anyway. The system itself rests on having these divisions. So the World Economic Forum came out with a statistic there recently whereby the gender pay gap will take about 200 years to close on the basis of current progress. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm not really willing to wait around (laughs) five, five, six generations for women to be paid equally. So we... We have a systemic problem here where, you know, capitalism itself rests on women being uh, exploited and obviously racial exploitation as well. So here in Ireland, of course, there may not be the same level as there are in other countries, but women face huge inequality here as well. I mean, we have... We're we're actually talking about a referendum where you take women's place in the home house. Like, we, we have... It's a systemic and ongoing issue with a misogynistic state in Ireland, you know, where the church and state were very connected. 
Well, well, that disconnect has has, has uh, somewhat diminished quite considerably over a period of time. And we'd like to think that we have a, an all-inclusive, forward-looking government. And we do. We, we have a government that, you know, thinks about inclusivity, thinks about equality. But it's, it's a slow burner. I mean, as you say, this is a global problem. Well, I, I don't think that this government does consider women at all. If you look at even the, the move that we've just been talking about in relation to eviction and in relation to the ongoing failure and the housing crisis. But the, the, the thing is that worldwide, we, we actually have a situation where things are going back, not forwards. So in the US, which is, you know, the cradle of the most, meant to be the richest country in the world and a, a guardian of freedom, where abortion rights are now being taken away. Walgreens, one of the biggest pharmacies there, is now stopping the stocking of abortion pills, which are being used in our health service right now for abortions. So that's an unbelievable prospect, you know. It really is a handmaid's tale situation. And nobody could ever have predicted that a few years ago. We also have a situation in Iran because it is International Women's Day. It's a day of solidarity with women all around the world who are fighting for their rights, where schoolgirls are leading a revolt against a clerical regime for you know, bodily autonomy and the most basic rights, and they're even being poisoned. Ruth, Ruth I'm sorry, uh, we're out of time on this, but yeah. um, I, I just do want to remind people that that march kicks off at five o'clock. It's from the Spire on Dublin's O'Connell Street, goes to the Doyle this evening. Uh, Ruth Coppinger, thank you for joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Good morning. If you've just joined us, you're with Alan Cantwell, standing in for Mike for the remainder of the week. You know the email, michael at lmfm.ie if you want to drop us a line this morning. The Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, received government approval to abolish public inpatient charges in all public hospitals. The bill, when enacted, will remove the acute public inpatient charge of €80 per day, up to a maximum of €800 in a year, including day case charges for people accessing care as a public patient in all public hospitals. Joining us this morning is Stephen McMahon of the Irish Patients Association. Stephen, good morning to you. Presumably this is something you welcome. Good morning, Alan. Indeed, it is something we welcome. I mean, you and I have spoken on many occasions about other areas of the health system that need urgent attention. And while this has been one of them, it's good to see something getting over the line. It was really a very unfair charge with a sort of attacks on, on illness. And, you know, for some people, the, 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 the fallout of that, Alan, was that, um, you know, they were being chased by debt collectors. The HSE, I think, in the year 2020, had spent something in excess of a half a million euros. And uh, this, this is something, the, yeah, this is something, Stephen, I was totally unaware of until I was speaking to... Um, uh, to Rachel Morrow from the Irish Cancer Society last last night, who told me that it was the practice of the HSE that if you went into default for up to 46 days, then they'd have the sheriff after you. That's, that's incredible. Well, sir, yes, indeed. And the Irish Cancer Society, to give them credit, did an awful lot of work to highlight this issue and to get these charges removed. But there were others out there, too, that were doing it. And you're right. I mean, it was actually 47 days, I think, um, that the debt collectors could be sent in. And some of their methods were quite uh, aggressive. And, you know, it was really just intimidating that people were fear of maybe if, if they were reported to these credit agencies, then that would have an impact on your ability 
ability to get loans elsewhere for other household needs or or whatever. So, you know, it's just good that this is gone and that um, whatever the the cost to the the exchequer for this is actually met with new money and not necessarily uh, would be taken out of existing funds because that would sort of be robbing Peter to pay Paul. Of course. Now, you know better than anyone else what has faced patience as we emerged from the COVID pandemic, the waiting lists, the operations, the procedures that have been put on hold. Are you seeing light at the end of the tunnel since COVID that we're getting to grips with the situation? Uh, To be honest with you, Alan, um, I think we're still, you know, at the mouth of the tunnel and, you know, there's still an awful lot of work to be done. We have rising uh, waiting lists there. There has been a small amount of improvement, but really, you know, perhaps some of that on the waiting list has been due to these validation processes where the system removes people or they remove themselves because they no longer need the, the, the treatment. But the challenge is that, you know, we have massive overcrowding in our emergency departments and there are serious risks associated with that. The experts have said it, there's studies to show that and it's one of the issues that we have been pushing the HSC in the review of the last winter to actually set up some study to see the impact on mortality within 30 days, for, especially for people who had long waits in the emergency departments, because there are uh, studies that suggest that, that that does add to additional deaths. It's not saying it's the cause of it, but that it, it does add to it. So, you know, um, you have almost, what, nearly seven, 800,000 people on waiting lists, mm. and there's a huge uh, divide in Irish society if you have private health insurance. Um, you won't experience those sort of long waits, although there are beginning to emerge uh, waitings for for some um, uh, areas. But the thing is that you don't experience having to wait for maybe up to 18 months or plus to, to see a consultant to tell you that you need an operation yeah. and then have to wait for a year. But this today about the um, removal of these charges is, is good news. I mean, it's a burden that's gone from people. I mean, you know, could you imagine having debt collectors knocking on your door and you're recovering from some cancer treatment or having maybe ongoing cancer treatments and other treatments and, and, and that fear? Because I've spoken, Alan, to families you know, that have been distraught when, when, when those experiences, when they had that experience. And it's good to see that one thing now has been removed. Can I just ask you, um, you know, as we came out of COVID, we have learned a lot. There are new treatments. Thankfully, the mortality rate has dropped. Thankfully, again, we're coming out of a winter which hasn't been too harsh. We saw the odd fluctuating spike in COVID cases and hospital admissions. Are you fearful that if we get hit or knocked with another significant COVID outbreak, that we will be able to deal with the numbers going to hospital? What I'm saying to you is, is the infrastructure sufficiently improved following COVID and following the learnings from COVID? Well, I think that there's a number of things that still need to happen. I mean, there have been, uh, you know, new beds announced uh, from previous budgets. And in part, they haven't been delivered because of the fact that, um, you know, it's been difficult to recruit staff. I mean, a bed needs a consultant that needs, Mm -hmm. you know, support doctors and nurses and and, and all the other sort of professions that are there to look after patients that that would be using that bed. Uh, I think there's, there's, there's issues of management that we still have to uh, get to grips with from 
the point of view of, of leadership. And we have to be honest with that. I was at a, a meeting there recently um, where it was what you would call a grand rounds, where there was a lot of students and other doctors in the hospital attended this meeting where there were other sort of experts talking about um you know, uh, uh, the patient's experience and so on. And it was amazing that it was some doctors that actually raised the issue on the panel that their experience as either parents or indeed as siblings of uh, our other family members who went through the system was not good. And we have to be honest about that and see. A simple example would be, say, and I'm sure many of your listeners have come across it from time to time, there's somebody in the emergency department, uh, that a family member that's gone in and you're phoning up to find out, you know, um, how are they or you're trying to pass on important information. And the difficulty that people have to engage with the system, you know, uh, is really very poor in a lot of cases. And the thing about it is that that bit of, that nugget of information that's trying to pass on about their father or mother or sister or whoever uh, could be vital in the actual care, in their care going forward. So, yes, you know, there are there are areas where progress is being made, but one of the weak things we find in Irish is the, the health system, and I've been looking at this for over mm. 30 years now, that um, it's the implementation of the plan. You would see a wonderful report or book about all the things that need to be done, and it's laid out in such a way it'd say, oh, that's great, there's a good menu there. And then but it gathers dust. Getting that, yeah, exactly. It's getting that into the, into, into the recipe in the, in, in, in the oven, It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To actually bake the souffle and that's the problem. Okay, Stephen McMahon of the Irish Patients Association, thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Primary school principals say the new curriculum will take time to integrate into classrooms. Details of the new framework are due to be published on Thursday, marking the first major shift in 25 years. The National Council for Curriculum and Assessment expects the new syllabus to be fully developed by 2026. Its focus will shift from traditional subjects with the introduction of foreign languages, engineering and technology. Brian Collins, principal of School Nae Fekin in County Louth, he says schools will need time to integrate 
the changes into the classroom. And Brian joins me uh, this morning. Brian, good morning to you. Um, we've waited almost a quarter of a century. Will it be worth the wait, do you think? Uh, good morning, Alan. Yeah, well, we're certainly hoping it will be. And, uh, you know, uh, as you said there, the, the NCCA have been working on this uh, for, for a number of years now uh, because the uh, existing curriculum dates back from 19, uh, 1999. So obviously it is uh, overdue um, uh, an update. And, you know, but there are new um, new elements to it uh, and some uh, really exciting um, uh, developments. You know, obviously foreign languages is something that they're proposing will be will be um, a, a, a central part of this, but that's being done to a certain extent already. In 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 some schools, there are quite a number of pilot programs uh, across the country. Hundreds of schools are already doing some foreign languages in primary, but it will give the opportunity for all uh, primary schools to. Um, to try out a foreign mm-hmm. language. Uh, now, it'll only be for an hour a week, but thats uh, I think that's a really good thing. Um, uh, uh, the, the STEM subjects, obviously, with, with our reliance in Ireland here on um, uh, companies, technology is going to be very uh, important, and it's going to be very important for children to be, you know, um, well-educated uh, in, in science, uh, okay. maths, technology, and engineering. Yeah, but the so reality... Are, yeah, yeah, the, the re- great, great, great new um, initiatives. Mm-hmm. The reality, though, Brian, as you know, its success or failure will be measured on the basis of whether or not it's embraced by all the stakeholders, more importantly, teachers. Do you anticipate that this, this will have a very difficult birth? I, I, I don't really, know. I think teachers are, are, are very excited about this, generally because I know... Uh, um, Working through the, with the on the old cur- curriculum framework, you know, a lot has changed in the last three decades, and I think it, you know teachers will embrace this. Now, the only uh, uh, thing I will say is that you know we will expect uh, um, adequate training and lead-in time. You know, I think uh, you, you said 2026. I think that's probably going to be uh, a bit optimistic because there's going to be, have to be quite a lot of of, of training and support and resources provided you know uh, in in the different areas there um, they have updated and then the other thing and equally important I think as well is the parents need to know and need to be informed if there is a shift of focus and if there's a slightly different mm-hmm. um, uh, approach to different subject areas and I think that you know we, we, we can't go on without parental involvement because they're critical they're a critical part of this uh, sure and, this, and I uh, want to take you up on that point because I remember my own two daughters when they were in school the methodology around which they approach certain problems whether it be in in maths or whatever was a completely alien concept to me when I sat down to try and help them with their homework as I had no understanding in relation to the way they were taught how to do problems and we're now coming to a revolutionary change in the curriculum in the next, whatever, three or four years, there is an absolute necessity or an imperative that parents understand this to be able to have some form of input and help for their sons and daughters. Yeah, no, I agree. No, the last thing we want is any confusion or any, um, you know, any difficulty uh, t- for this to create any difficulty for parents. And I think um, schools and the department have have learned the lesson from the previous, uh, uh, the introduction of the previous curriculum and the new maths. As uh, I've often heard parents say, but we don't we don't understand the new maths or how it's done, you know. And I think we have learned the lesson uh, from those experiences. And you, what, 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 you know, in practical terms. Uh, schools now can can um, 
let parents know that there are uh, videos of how to explain different uh, elements of the maths curriculum and just taking maths as, the, as an example online. So if parents are confused about, you know, you know the way, um, you know, addition and subtraction are done now because it, it's possibly done in a different way to when they were at school, there is a link there that teachers, a class teacher can say, listen, this is going to be done a little bit differently to the way you learned at a school. Click on this link. You'll see how it's being done at school now. Uh, so I think that'll really help, and I think that's okay. probably going to be the, the approach going forward. Now, l- let's look at what is proposed. We all accept that languages are, are crucial to to any student, and as you point out, they're already being taught in some particular schools. But it provides us with an opportunity as well to not just tinker around the edges with the curriculum, but to make some root and branch changes. Do you get the sense from what we know already that they are engaging in a process of making this a revolutionary change to the curriculum? Yeah, I think and for the introduction of foreign languages would would be one element of that. I think we have to um we have to accept that, it, that we are an island nation and we we are quite um uh, detached from the, the continent of Europe and there are so many opportunities for language development and I think it is proven that the earlier children are exposed to languages. Now, I don't think the the, the approach is going to be um, a great deal of learning. It's more of an appreciation for the language, learning some basic vocabulary, maybe uh, information and, and some education about the culture of different countries, the, you know, the different, um, uh, how different people uh, carry on their lives in different countries, and, you know, some basic vocabulary and conversational uh, language in primary school. So, which will hopefully generate a love for foreign languages in primary school and create um, an interest among pupils of for learning a foreign language as they go on into post-primary and beyond. Now, it's all about bringing stakeholders on board, getting buy-in for, from them. What level of interaction have you or principals, the IPPN, had with the minister around this or the NCCA for that matter? Now, I have to say that, that there has been a consultation process ongoing. So, you know, the opportunities have been there for um, educators and for parents and for, for all members of the community to contribute their thoughts and their opinions to this process. It's been going on for a number of years. Uh, we know that a lot of work is going on in the background. So there have been opportunities for people uh, to uh, uh, contribute their opinions and uh, to contribute to the process. Um, but we won't really know until the announcement is made and until, until we get more information exactly. I know there has been, there have been some, uh, there has been some information um, appearing in newspapers and on, on the media. But, uh, but hopefully the, the consultation process has worked well and the opinions and the contributions of individual educators and parents and other members of the community has been uh, incorporated into what's going to be produced. Now, there is one particular issue. I know it's not necessarily relevant to you, but the reversal, as it were, that the Minister for Education had to undertake last week around Paper 1, Paper 2 of the Leaving Certificate, that was heralded as a major initiative and a major change in relation to how we sit the Leaving Cert. She had to change in that. It doesn't augur well for someone who wants to bring such a raft of changes to the to primary curriculum, does it? Uh, no, but at the same time, you know, I suppose when 
you know, an, an error has been recognised. Uh, I think there has to be some credit given when uh, when something is recognised uh, to be uh, an error or a mistake. That's you know, it's you can you can take a step back and say, okay, let's have a look at that again. And there will be elements of this. I'm sure it's it's a very it's a, it's a big uh, shift. And I know there will be tweaks. Uh, that will have to be uh, done as we go on over the next decade or so on in individual parts of this new curriculum uh, framework because it's such a, it's a, there are so many changes in there and you know even time allocation we just have to be very careful about that you know that we don't um, disadvantage uh, you know or, or or create create any uh, any damage to what's being done by taking some time off you know, certain areas, because we've done a massive amount of work on the, the new primary language curriculum in the last few years. And we just don't, we have to be careful mm-hmm. if we're introducing a new language now that, you know, there's adequate time still for the development of English and Gaelge in, in schools. Okay, Brian, I just want to talk to you a little bit uh, about, before we leave it, the whole issue of homework. I suppose it was brought to the fore by virtue of comments made by Uktaran Neheran a number of months ago, and we heard the Taoiseach talking about it as well. Where do you sit on homework yourself? Good thing, bad thing, or should we have a look at the manner in which we, we, uh, we allocate studies outside of school? I don't think any conversation and education is complete without <laughs> opinions and homework being being uh, exchanged. Uh, uh, personally, I think uh, if constructive and, and and a limited amount of homework is a good thing because I think it does uh, foster and improve the homeschool link. N- homework, of course, can become very stressful, and we need to be very aware that the homework that's given by teachers uh, is 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 um, is doable for children, and also is is a reinforcement of, of what's being done at school. So there isn't really a lot of new learning. It's just he- helping children to you know practice skills, uh, reading independently, um, and for their parents then to just look over the shoulder and see what they're doing and how they're getting on without spending hours and hours at the kitchen table and causing stress in the family. I think there is a place for it, but we just need to be very careful about the nature and the content of what's given. Brian Collins, Principal of School and a Feckin' Terminal Feckin', thank you for joining us this morning. Let's stay with the news that the government yesterday announced the ending of the moratorium on evictions and the homeless charity DePaul are one of many organisations who have come out and have voiced their objections to it, their concern around the particular move by the government. In fact, I think the only uh, group that has you know, welcomed the move has been the landlords. But let's talk to Dermot Murphy, Director of uh, Services and Development with DePaul. Dermot, thanks for joining us this morning. We had one government minister, albeit a junior minister, on the programme this morning saying, we're not going to fall off a cliff here. Is he right? Well, Alan, I think in, in Nepal we're we're actually quite concerned at the the moratorium on the evictions being lifted, and there's, there's a significant amount of angst about in our own organisation, as well as with the people we work with who are in precarious accommodation. I think last year we we know there was nearly three thousand eviction notices um, processed in the first half of the year, and if we see those type of numbers, at least in the short term we know that there is going to be an increase in, in the homeless figures and, and the minister acknowledged that himself yesterday. So that's, that's our biggest concern right now is in the short term, we expect the numbers to go up and homeless services are running 
at full capacity. So our question really is, what is the short-term answer here in, in providing more emergency responses whilst the measures the government are, are at a putting in place uh, take effect in the mid to long term. Can I ask you, this particular crisis, coupled with the cost of living crisis, how, how much pressure are your services, how much pressure have they been under in the past year? Oh, it's been it's been quite quite in, in, in significant. I think um, both both from operating on, on our own end, and because obviously costs have gone up to to run services and and for our staff their their own costs. But for the people coming into us, we're seeing we're seeing an increase in the number of people who who are having to make some very stark choices around heating the house or, or having meals and. There is a significant amount of support being put in place by ourselves and our other contemporaries in the in the charity sector, but also, the, you know, through our statutory partners, they're working. They are working hard to try and come up with solutions, but it, it's problematic, and, and we're seeing that. in, you know, even to heat house through the winter, thankfully, it wasn't the worst winter we've ever experienced, mm. and it meant that it, it didn't it didn't impact as much as we we had feared. Although, you know, when we hear about yellow that yellow warnings. Uh, which now we know that has an impact on our on our service users, and you know we're hearing a lot of anxiety around managing bills, paying rent, you know, paying the heat and light costs, food costs, additional costs for family, travel. It, it, it's all it's all quite impactful. And when you think about the most marginalised and vulnerable people who are in precarious housing situations, this has a compounding effect. I have spoken to um, many organisations involved in providing supports and charity to those who are on the margins. And historically, we have thought that individuals seeking such help were always on the margins. That has changed from what I have gathered talking to these charities. Have you noticed that, that we've seen what would have been considered more affluent individuals now seeking help? Yeah, well, I think I think to, to coin your phrase, the margins have widened. Yeah, quite simply, um, people that you know, like we we you know we traditionally would have worked with very vulnerable people um, who would have had some complex issues or what we call multiple comorbidities, so health issues, mental health, maybe addiction, things like that. You now have people who are working who have very few complex issues, and the biggest issue is getting access to accommodation. They won't need a whole lot of ongoing supports and engagements. And um, so yeah, I, I think I think it's it's fair to say that the, the margins have widened and, and there's a wider uh, cohort of people coming into homeless services that wouldn't have traditionally come into homeless services in the past. And then if we fast forward, we'll say another 12 months, because we are seeing now the impact of interest rate hikes on individuals who now come into that widened margin, as, as, as you describe it. And you are looking at inflation continuing to drop, but not at the sort of levels that will impact families. Because when you look at inflation in the grocery sector, it's a 16 point something, 16.6%, which is higher than fuel. We still have the fuel crisis going on. This will compound everything else and lead to a situation where you guys will just be overcome. You won't be able to cope, will you? Well, I think I think it's fair to say when the moratorium was implemented last year, um, DePaul supported it. Um, we did. Um, 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 we worked with the minister and private landlords, um, and we spoke quite honestly about 
where things were at. And, and that was homeless services were currently full. Um, there was no potential to expand the accommodation available for homeless people at a, at a rate that would be necessary and the potential for the numbers that would come into homelessness because of potential evictions was meant it was highly likely that we were going to see a higher degree of people having nowhere to go. Um, that hasn't changed a whole lot at the moment. We're, we're still full. Um, we're still very full in our services. Um, we know that with the lifting of the eviction ban that this will increase the number of people that are coming in in the short term into homelessness. And we, we don't know where they're going to go. We're, we're going to, you know, we're very interested to uh, engage with our strategy partners mm-hmm. on on the measures that are being put in place to get an understanding of what those short-term solutions might be and how we might support that. Did you get the sense when you were engaging with the rel- relevant government bodies and government itself that they listened to you or did you walk away from those meetings feeling you were just going through a box-ticking exercise with them? Um, I, look, I think the decision on the lifting of the moratorium it is a complex one, um, and we empathise with the, the the hard decisions that have to be made. And um, we work incredibly closely with our strategy partners, um, and and to be fair, they provide us with, with a high degree of support to ensure that we can support some of the most complex and vulnerable people in our society. Um, so I think in general there there is a very good collaboration. I think our, our concern is in the in the short term, we do expect to see an increase in homelessness, and this increase uh, is something that currently, without an understanding of what those solutions might be, we don't know how the homeless sector will bear it. Okay, Dermot Murphy, Director of Services and Development with DePaul, thank you for joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Don't forget, you can email the programme, it's michael at lmfm.ie. 56% of Ireland's native plants are in decline, with native grassland plants suffering the most. That's according to research carried out over a 20-year period by the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland. The Plant Atlas 2020 project reveals what has been described as the devastating loss of Ireland's wild plants. There was, however, some good news. The research found that 80% of non-native plants introduced since 1500 have increased. Joining us this morning to discuss the findings of the report is Dr... Micheline Sheehy-Skeffington, BSBI President, to discuss the research project over 20 years. Um, Doctor, good morning. Quite an undertaking, 20 years. Was there a reason to to pick 20 years? What was the rationale behind it? Well, it's a kind of a gap. The previous atlas came out 40 years after the first. The first ever one was produced in in 1962, and then Atlas 2000, as it was called, was produced for for 2000. So it's a a snapshot. Um, As as you can guess, you know, these distributions appear on maps, but, you know, right from the get-go, we've got to keep monitoring them, you know, and this is a really good opportunity to see what plants are suffering, what plants are decreasing, where are they decreasing, and can we go and see what's happening in that area? It's, okay. it's the spatial observation of what's happening as a suite of species from all kinds of different habitats. And on first reading of the final report, what was your initial reaction? Well, I mean, quite quite stunned that just that many native species have declined. Now, I must say that the method of recording, you, you're probably familiar with the dot distribution map. So yeah. These are usually 10 by 10 kilometre hectares, 
you know, the squares. And we actually record within those on a smaller scale. But what comes up on the maps is that. So a, a decline could be something that has occurs, occurred maybe in 40 squares, you know, before the beginning of the last atlas. So before 1987, it's not just 20 years, but the recording started in 1987. So anything that happened before that, if there's a change, even a five, a loss of five squares, that species has declined. And so, is that decline directly as a result of our intervention, whether it comes to farming, fertilisers, etc., or is it just a case it happens naturally anyway? I think in this day and age and on this planet, there's very little that has to do with us, uh, humanity. I mean, climate change is to do with our intervention. But yeah, I mean, a lot of it is land use, land management. And one of the things that I want to emphasise, because people, you know, rightly are pointing the finger a lot at nutrients, you know, of fertilisation, which discourages some of these uh, rarer plants. They don't like a high nutrient environment and, and there's runoff into the into the waterways as well, which has changed things remarkably. But land abandonment is also happening, and that's also bringing about, I mean, even something on Morning Ireland, they mentioned heathers. Well, the heathers have declined because land abandonment happened. So the farmers who farm the land must be encouraged to remain on the land, but to work with the experts with the, the specialists and, and to be paid according to how much they can conserve. One particular statistic that caught my eye was the complete contrast in that 80% of the species introduced in Ireland since 1500 have increased. Why is that? Yeah, I saw you said that was good news. I'm not so sure it is. Um, basically, the, a lot of these species just come in, you know, um, a case in point in the report is the American willow herb, which is a small little weed, you know, and it's it's not going to have natural predators. It hasn't okay. developed its own, you know, it, in its own diseases even or anything, probably. It also thrives um, as a result of weed killing. And I have to admit that the amount of weed killing all over churchyards, footpaths, everywhere is stunning. And, and something like that is being favoured against the natural um, flora, which would maintain itself. You're know, just encouraging nettles and, and aliens, as we call them, actually, because they're non-native. So there'll be a lot of things coming in, you know, with with waste, with people coming from abroad, cars, you know, all of that. They're going to naturally bring in things from elsewhere. And I'm not that surprised that there's a lot of things that uh, once they get in here, they're probably going to find, oh, yeah, great, I can spread here, you know. And, and some, only some of them are, are quite na- nasty invasive, like the Himalayan balsam or rhododendron which we've had for a long time. The balsam is is on the increase more recently. Now, there are ramifications, much bigger ramifications for the environment in relation to habitats as a result of disappearing um, natural native uh, species of plants. Are we seeing habitats being impacted as a result of the decline? Absolutely. I mean, these species are indicator species, as I call them, you know, so a lot of them are grassland species, the thing like the field gentian, for example, and and cowslips even, you know, uh, they're not there anymore. You don't notice it because you see, Mm -hmm. oh, that's a field. And then you don't see that actually when there used to be 40 species in that field, there's maybe only five or six. Um, so, yes, and of course, the, what you started by saying is the plants, of course, form the basis of the habitats. So a habitat is created by the environment. If it's a bit of wetland, it's going to have wetland type plants. But the plants are the habitat. They're the matrix, if you like. And there's so many other things, insects and, and vertebrates and mammals and things that depend on that. The birds feed off the insects. The birds are actually natural predators of crop pests. 
So, do you know, we're, we're losing more and more of our natural system of coping with uh, the environment the more we lose these habitats. And that's really what it's pointing out, is that the habitats are, are changing. And, and, you know, something like a lake, too. You look at a lake, a lake's always there. And you go diving in it and you find that half the, the flora has disappeared. You know, there, there's just the few plants that like high nutrients or cloudy water. We so we, that, we know scary thing. yeah we know what the solution is. There's no question about that, and we discuss those in in a few moments. But the reality is, we have to accept that the global population is increasing. There are greater demands on agriculture in order to feed that growing population, and perhaps we don't have a choice but to become more involved in intensive farming in order to meet those demands. And as a result, we're going to see an impact on the native species, not just on the native species, but across the board. Surely. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, we there are more of us around, but uh, I'd take you up on the intensive farming and the more and more intensive farming. Please do, one yeah. Has to, one has to look at, um, you know, one needs to do an economic analysis. I mean, the uh, nutrients are, are spread on the land. It shouldn't be running off into the watercourses. That's that's a waste, you know, of application, you know, and in places where you can't do that, then people can farm without it. So uh, that's one of the things we and there are places where people farm more intensively than others. And I'm talking about play, the, the le- less intensively farm places are disappearing. And, you know, the, the subsidies to support those farmers are, are not sufficient. So, yeah, there has to be a certain amount of that. You can't just say, well, we all go back to rewilding and because that's not going to work anyway. But, you know, we need to also look at the methods of how intensive farming is working and whether that's the most economic and whether there are other more sustainable ways of looking at it and cutting back on some of these things. I mean, there's a whole debate now about the hedgerows. One of the reasons farmers are cutting all the hedgerows is because the area aid means that the acreage that they can see often from aerial photographs of a field is is measured and you're paid according to that. So if your field's got a, a wide hedgerow, it's going to have less acreage. Well, that makes no sense. You're paid according to the area you farm. Should be paid according to you know how you produce it and 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 that. But to have people cutting cutting back you know hedgerows and clearing scrub and all of that, it really it, it doesn't work long term. I mean, sustainability is something that we we understand economically, but it's also something that long term you can't have a growth economy. In, in 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 the environment in ecosystem, it doesn't work. You know, mm. <laughs> so. Yes, to your answer, but also we need to look at the, the details behind it and, and it's not the full solution that everybody can go intensive and, and, and feed more people. But, uh, as well as the fact that we actually export a lot of, of our course. farm produce. One, one thing that, that has uh, struck me when it comes to issues of um, in, environmental issues, not just in this country but globally, it was always the youth who were at the vanguard when it came to campaigning for change, campaigning for people to to make real impact into the um, the problems facing the environment. Are they still that engaged? Are they still, still that enthusiastic? Well, they are. The Fridays for Future, there was a big group meeting in Galway. I think they are. I mean, you know, if they're facing up what's going to happen. And climate change is actually the it's not even an elephant in the room it's a massive thing, it's a Komodo dragon I was here, you know we need to think about climate change you know, and the emissions and, and what goes up into the air and we have to look at it it's very easy for us to say oh well look I'll just hop in the car and I'll do this or we'll fly somewhere, unless there's something like a pandemic it seems we can't turn ourselves around and it's, it, you know, and the, people, the young people are seeing this 
and they they don't necessarily have the power. So it's very hard to kind of make change when you're when you're still at school or in university and that. But they are and they do care, and I think they're even more engaged than they than they ever were on this. And I can fully understand why. And why do you not think there has been a mobilisation amongst an older generation or an older cohort? Because I, you, you pointed out um, cow slips. I mean, I remember as a kid in the country, you'd go into a field. It was a meadow and there was wild flowers, there was cow slips, there was whatever out there. Now you go down there and it's just completely devoid of wild flowers. And as you say, hedgerows are cut back. We've seen a decline yeah, in yeah. populations of corn crakes, all that sort of thing, albeit yeah. that we are making some minor inroads into trying to bring back native species. But what is it going to take for us to actually realise this is a problem? Well, I hope that this, the BSBI, the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland, is going to highlight that. I might just add that the BSBI is, is a, you know, it's a very professional body because the people doing these records are really experts and they are out in the field with other people. Everybody's welcome to come along. The person responsible for that particular recording day or whatever knows all their plants. If they don't, we've got a, a, nearly a hundred experts in the in the society who can advise on things. But you can come along and you can learn. And I think that's one of the important things too. We, we should be doing something. And if you do nothing but attend one of these and learn, like for example, you know about management and about the effects of weed killer, for example, and tidy towns and needing to come back. I, there isn't a mass movement because, unfortunately, people who are get into the into employment and having children and and God help us, you know, trying but, to find a roof of over course. their heads. But but what I'm saying to you is, I mean, um, notwithstanding the um, importance of this body of research over the uh, two decades and other research which is carried out, there needs to be some sort of seismic shift to bold people upright to say we need to act right now. I, I have not seen that coming, albeit we yeah. know that there is a problem. Yeah, well, we all need to be out there. I mean, the government needs to sit up. And and one of, the, one of my points is the Department of Agriculture needs to talk to the experts about this. Because I, I was quite upset about the fact that the people running the Burning Farming for Conservation programme have resigned because... The Department of Agriculture, in its wisdom, has decided that everybody should get uh, payment for for sustainable farming, but only on, at the minimum level. This this new acres, which is the new gloss, which was reps before. Mm-hmm. Now, what they were doing in the borough is a specialised thing and all the farmers that, uh, that wanted to be on board in that. There were loads more like that. The government needs to lead on this. And Department of Agriculture needs to work with what was recommended. And there, there are systems that were recommended about, you know, it's called results-based. Okay. So farmers are paid according to what the results so, are so. in terms of conservation. We have to do that. And we also all have to ask the government okay. to do that and vote for the right people. Very good. Unfortunately, we've run out of time there. Dr. Micheline Sheehy, Scaffington, uh, BSBI President. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. Let's just get to some of your comments uh, before we wrap it up this morning. Like you, Alan, Anne says she was shocked to hear that there are carers as young as 15 or 16 looking after loved ones and family members. What a responsibility to put on such young shoulders. It's completely unfair and the government should be ashamed of themselves for putting families in this position. There has to be proper support and services provided for those in need of them. Read the eviction ban. Tommy says this decision by government will come back and bite them at the polls. It's not sitting well with people and displays a staggering inability by government to read the room, as the saying goes. People will not forget this, as it could cost the government dearly. And just finally, 
Mary in RD contacted us to appeal to dog owners to keep their pets under control when they're out and about on walks. She was heading to work this morning and was driving in the Collin area where she happened upon a couple out walking their dog. They didn't have the animal on a lead and it shot out onto the road in front of her. She luckily avoided hitting it and asked that we should have... Uh, she should have been at fault. Would, uh, where would the blame lie? I think probably blame would lie with you, Mary, under law. Not quite sure, but I think it may have. But you raise an interesting point there. I thought there was a law which said you had to have a dog on a leash when it was out and about, unless it was in designated areas for dogs. Don't know, could be wrong on that. OK, it's International Women's Day and the theme of this year is hashtag embrace equity. The focus on equity acknowledges that people don't begin life in the same place and their circumstances can make it more difficult for people to achieve the same goals. Joining us this morning is Imelda Fallon, key worker with Meath Women's Refuge and uh, Support Services. Uh, Imelda, good morning to you. How are you this morning? Good morning, Alan. How are you? Thanks Very for well. having me on today. Not at all. International Women's Day. Are you more optimistic now about equality and women's rights than you were last year on this day? Yes, I am, um, Alan, because um, domestic violence has been highlighted more since the pandemic um, started. So it was more kind of, you know, it was advertised on TV mm-hmm. and radio stations. And so it has been more highlighted. It's been highlighted to the extent that there now is a requirement to provide more services for those who have been um, uh, who have suffered at the uh, at the hands of an abuser, and they will require support and shelter. Is that support and shelter available for them? Well, at the moment, um, not really, um, Alan. Um, but I know we do have ambition for change um, for from two thousand twenty three to twenty six. Mm. Um, we do have a new refuge facility that we will be getting. Um, we will have growth in our service. Um, so that's a positive. Um, we only, at the moment, we provide eight, um, eight we can p- provide for eight women. Um, and going into the new building, we will have like 12 units mm-hmm. in the com- so this this is good. Now, one of the aspirations is to create a, a society that no longer tolerates gender-based mm-hmm. discrimination or violence. It's a sad reflection that that is one of our aspirations, that we are still trying to turn the tide on that. Why is that? Well, um, well I suppose in Ireland we know that the real cause of violence against women is the unequal position of women in society. While women's equality has has advanced in recent recent years, but we still have a long way to go. Um, domestic violence does take place behind closed doors in, in every town and village, um, primarily perpetrated against women, and shockingly, one in four women in Ireland have experienced abuse. Do you from think a current or a yeah. former partner? Do, do you think? Do you sense that there is change coming? amongst a younger generation that they see it for what it is and how despicable and how unacceptable it is? Well, we are going to try and target the younger generation now, Alan, um, in our community because, like, you know, we are hoping that it will be brought into the education system that are educated within the school and that Mead Women's Refuge can go into schools and, you know, kind of speak about domestic violence and what domestic violence is. And domestic violence takes various forms. There's there's the physical violence, there's the psychological violence. Are you seeing a mix of both? Are you seeing more physical than, than mental? 
No, domestic violence is, I suppose, is, is where one person uses control and coercive to assist power of the partner in an intimate relationship. And it, this can be physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse or financial abuse. So it varies. And and how do you see, the, if we were to have this conversation this time next year, what what change would you like to see? Well, I, personally, I would like to see that women do not have to leave their home because of a perpetrator. Women and children have to leave their home because of a perpetrator and they're left within the home. Okay, Imelda Fallon, key worker with me, the Women's Refuge and Support Services. Unfortunately, we've run out of time there, but thank you for joining us on this International Women's Day. We're back with you tomorrow, same time, a little bit after nine o'clock on the Michael Reed Show. You're with Alan Cantwell for the rest of the week. Till tomorrow, same time. Good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.